the book of Genesis. We've gone from the last book of the Bible to the first book of the Bible. Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. Back again and come again to you. Sorry. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So you know this this story and the surrounding narrative. Abraham and his wife were unable to have children. 
Nonetheless, God promised that their descendants would be as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And in this chapter, chapter 22, was a reaffirmation of that, but that, this is not the first time he gave that promise, but long years before this event, years before Isaac was born. Even after many more years had passed, still there no, no child had come to, to Sarah and Abraham. When Abraham was 86 and Sarah 76, Sarah thought she'd help God fulfill his promise by giving her servant Hagar to Abraham. And though baby Ishmael was born, it only created worse problems. And God said the promised child would come through Sarah. Finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah 90, God blessed Sarah's womb with the promised son, Isaac. So Isaac was not just their son, he was their only son. But the joy, but he was also the joy and the hope of their lives. Everything they looked forward to, everything about their identity was wrapped up in this little child. Now, you know, these the story is written in such a way that it sounds very mechanical. You know, uh, here's a guy, he's got a son, a son of promise, and God says, go flame at the altar. The next day he gets up and he takes his son over and he, you know, it's like he's a robot. He's not even, because there's all the emotions that are, were obviously embedded are just not given to us. And that's because they don't need to be given to us. We can understand the emotions that he must have been going through. You know, uh, we're told the emotions sometimes, but that's when you need to know what the emotions were. But we don't need to know because every father in this situation would have the same emotions. We know what the emotions are if God would, would take someone's son away. Anyway... It's extremely difficult of anyone to lose a child. But losing an only child and losing the child who is the key to your future, this takes the loss to a whole different level. And one more thing. God didn't take Isaac. God required Abraham to take Isaac's life. You know, it's one thing when your child dies in a car accident and, and uh, you know, your heart is broken and ripped apart. But to be required to do the deed yourself, oh boy, that would be so much worse. I think it's safe to say that what God asked Abraham to do was far more difficult than anything God has asked any of us to ever do. And yet he did it. He took the knife to slaughter his son, and only God's intervention stopped him. God had given Abraham an incredible gift. Not only a son to continue his line, but a great nation and a great land. 
but a promise that the whole world would be blessed through it all. So embedded in all this was dependent on this boy, this young man at this point. But Abraham knew that it was even more than that. This promise was even more than that. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham understood that the true fulfillment of these promises was actually a heavenly land. So when God gave the baby Isaac, he was giving perhaps the best gift that anyone had ever been given. And then, when he was a young man, God asked Abraham to give Isaac back. Now, this happened only once in the Bible, where a father is asked to sacrifice his son. But there is a clear pattern. God sometimes gives people a gift, a precious gift, and then takes it back or asks for it back. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, Job said. And God gave Job ten kids and much wealth and then he took them all away in one day. God gave Rachel and Joseph to Jacob but then took them away. God gave Joseph a place of honor in Potiphar in uh, Jacob's household, but then took that away. And then God gave Joseph a high position in Potiphar's household, and then took that away. Jesus gave his disciples the power to cast out demons, and then took that away. God gave Mary and Martha a wonderful brother, and then he took him away. You know, in the 1993 movie starring Richard Harris about Abraham, just called Abraham, as Abraham lays Isaac upon the altar, the son asks his father, Is there nothing the Lord might not require of you? And Abraham somberly says, No, there isn't. And that's true. The worst loss of all, of course, was when God gave the world a Savior and then took him away. And his disciples were shattered. They felt like their whole world had caved in. Many of us have experienced heart-wrenching losses. God gives us precious things. But then he asks us to give up those precious things. Spouse, health, child, parent, sibling, friend, our youth, our beauty, our mind, our job, our acceptance. It may seem like God is heartless in doing this kind of thing. But the opposite is actually true. He cares so much about us that he only does this when we need it. 
And he gives us many helps to know how to think about it when he does this kind of thing. For instance, the story of Abraham and Isaac. How many of you, raise your hand, if you've heard the expression, family is everything? It's understandable that people say this because God gives us such a natural affection for our family and our family is so important to us. How many of you have ever heard the expression, winning is everything? Well, people who operate that way in the world of sports are exalted. That's what you want. You want to have a player who's willing to do anything to win. Well, I hate to be a party pooper, but both of these things are terrible lies. Family is not everything. Winning is not everything. Only God is everything. And those who think family or winning or anything else is everything are doomed by that belief ultimately. That's why Jesus said, whoever loves father, mother, son, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is family a bad thing? Of course not. Family is a wonderful thing. And God commands us to love and cherish our families and take care of them. But family is a bad God. I can survive without my son, my daughter, my wife, my father, my mother, my friends, my house, my job, my country, my arm, my eye, or even without my life. But I cannot survive without my Savior. And this is why we must not treat things like family as if they are everything. That's why God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now I know, he says, that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Now some people say, well, why go through this? Couldn't God have just looked into his heart and seen that he loved God and feared God? That's not the point here. The fact is that this action of placing his son on the altar solidified Abraham's Willingness to yield his son to God. It made it come true. How was Abraham able to do this? Well, he could do it because of faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that faith means believing that God rewards those who seek him. In other words... People with faith are people who know that the path of trusting and obeying God is always the path of flourishing. As Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You see, God always outgives us. 
If you believe that, then you want to give and you're willing to give because you know that giving will always get more back. As in, and in Mark 10, 29 to 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this present life houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. A person of true faith believes this. That whatever you're called to give up in this life, it will be given back to you a hundredfold. And then, after death, you will enjoy eternal life. And if a person does not have faith, it's good for him as well. Because it exposes his lack of faith. You see, if you're not a true Christian but just think you are, then it's actually better you realize that now than go along thinking that you're safe. If your soul is in danger, it's better to know that your soul's in danger. Then you can do something about it. But if you think you're safe, you don't think you need to do anything. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham obeyed God and lifted his knife to sacrifice Isaac because he was trusting in God's promises. Listen to what it says in verse 17 to 19 of Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He that Abraham considered, this is how he was thinking, it tells us in verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham knew that God had promised to make him a great nation through Isaac. So he knew Isaac had to survive in order for God to keep his word. And he knew God always kept his word. How else could God fulfill his promise? So Abraham was thinking that even if he killed Isaac, God would raise Isaac from the dead in order to fulfill his promise. In the face of such a horrific request, Abraham didn't lose his head. I'm sure he was confused. I'm sure he was dazed in some ways. But he didn't let it all compromise his confidence in God's promises. He held firm. None of us have perfect earthly fathers. But most of us can at least imagine having such a wonderful father that if he asked us for something, then we'd be glad to give it to him just because, not just because we'd be eager to help him out, but because we know that whatever he's up to and whatever he needs it for, we're going to end up getting the better end of the deal. 
if he takes my plate of food, he's going to bring me back something even better. If he borrows my car, he's going to return it washed, polished, filled with gas, new brakes, an oil change, and a tune-up. That's the kind of heavenly father you and I have. If God demands something from us, we're the ones who are going to benefit. Think about Abraham and Isaac's trip back home. Suddenly, everything that had been confusing made sense. This was not just relief. This was sheer joy. And think of the bond of love that the two had forged, which couldn't have been forged any other way. And as we walk toward our Mount Moriah, just remember what it's going to be like on your way back home. Of course, this doesn't mean you're always going to understand it all right away. I've told you about my story of not facing my pain and how God convicted me that I needed to learn to face my own pain. Now, most of us don't deal with pain in a healthy way. Some get angry and feel betrayed. Some blame others. Some feel sorry for themselves. Some feel hopeless. Some get anxious and panicky. Some get fearful and paranoid. Some detach and get apathetic. Some feel abandoned and unloved, and I'm sure if you talk to Elizabeth, she can give you more possibilities of what people do when they experience pain. The way I always dealt with pain was by locking it down in the dungeon of my heart and getting busy with other things. But after I did that enough times, I could hear a low murmur emanating from deep in my heart and I didn't even know what it, where it came from. I just knew that there was like a, a wailing from deep down of pain. First, a friend loved me enough to point this out to me. And then God really rubbed my face in it at a presbytery retreat where there was a speaker who spoke about how pastors often deal with pain by just trying to avoid the temptations to escape in sinful ways, but don't really face their pain. It was as if God himself was speaking to me. And I was sitting there fighting with all of my might to refrain from bursting out in loud sobs. I knew that I had to deal with my pain. The first thing I did was take an inventory of my pain. I came up with about seven or eight sources of pain. And then I began to take each of these sources of pain in prayer before the Lord. And I'd never done that before. And I'd take each one and I prayed, Lord, why? Why did you let this happen? What good purpose could there possibly be in this? And amazingly, one by one, God began to show me how ultimately he had blessed me through each of these painful realities in ways that I didn't even realize. 
He showed me that in each case, He was not depriving me. He was not hurting me, but blessing me because of His goodness and love for me. I also told you that there was one exception, one major source of pain which never made sense to me. It was my parents' divorce when I was 16, which still didn't really add up. I lost so much from the divorce, and even after years of prayer and seeking the Lord, I could think of only a few modest benefits that it brought. Nothing compared to the things that it seemed to have taken from me. For years now, I've worn my father's wedding ring on my pinky to remind me to continue to ask God to show me why and what the benefits were. God didn't owe me that until heaven, when he will give us all that information. But I asked him anyway. Well, I want to tell you that last month I had a breakthrough. One day I was thinking about my father and appreciating the ways that God used him in my life. In thinking about all the qualities of my dad which had inspired me and impacted me as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. And then suddenly I realized that almost all of those qualities had come to my father as a result of the divorce. My father was radically humbled and broken by the divorce And it made him aware of the fact that he had major blind spots which he had been unaware of. He became a person who was eager to hear feedback and determined to work out relational issues instead of ignoring them. A big mistake he'd made in his marriage. He also became almost fanatical about putting family as a priority. Another mistake he'd made. And suddenly, I had my answer. It may actually be that God allowed my parents' divorce so that I wouldn't have to experience divorce myself. God took away my parents' marriage. He took away my siblings because they went to live in the other house. Yet in return, he taught me things I needed to succeed as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. My parents' divorce, as painful as it was, may well have prevented me from all kinds of troubles and problems. It was definitely a death in my life, but it led to many resurrections. Now, I am very reluctant to talk about myself in my because I want to point you to Jesus and not to myself. But I share this illustration to make the point. Job said that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But he said that at the beginning of his story when everything had just been taken away from him. If Job had to faithfully summarize his life, he As a whole, he would have said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And when the Lord takes away, he gives back even more. Because that's exactly what happened. 
And that's what he did with Abraham. That's what he did with his disciples when he took away Jesus. And that's what he does for us whenever he takes something away. It's long been recognized that the story of Abraham and Isaac points forward to the story of the Heavenly Father giving up his son on the altar of the cross. You may have heard that there's a movie in the theaters right now about the story of Abraham and Isaac that came out Easter week for a reason. It's called His Only Son. The title, which picks up on Genesis 22:12 here in our passage, You have withheld your son, your only son, from me. But it also picks up on John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in the movie, at the moment when God tells Abraham to spare Isaac, you know, and stops his hand from the sacrifice, suddenly there's many pictures that flash across the screen. Just, you just get a quick glimpse of each one. And one of the pictures is of a stone being rolled away from a tomb. And this isn't surprising. Because in a sense, Isaac was raised from the dead, as it says in the passage in Hebrews 11. And it foreshadowed the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus gave up his life, and then it was given back. And now he calls us to do the same. To give up our lives in the confidence that whatever he takes from us, He will more than pay back. And so, it's our turn to show the world that this works. That God is faithful. What has God taken away from you? It hurts, doesn't it? Well, do you know that you can make that hurt worse? We sing this line in one of our hymns. Our cross and trials do but press the harder, the heavier. Our cross and trials do but press the heavier for our bitterness. We make matters worse when we get angry, when we get resentful, when we feel sorry for ourselves. But we can also make it better. We can lighten our burden and soothe our pain. By remembering God's promises. That whenever God takes something away. He is going to give it back. Or give us something even better. Every little part of you. That God takes. Every little part of you that dies. Will be resurrected. When he requires a piece of you to be cast to the ground, it will be like a seed which will grow up and produce much fruit. He is worthy of being trusted. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have proven by your own life That death 
is not the end. And Lord, you've called us now to trust you. To trust you with our own deaths, but to trust you with all of our little deaths on the way to our own death. Oh Lord, help us to let go and know that you are faithful. Oh Lord, when pains and losses come, may we not bury ourselves in the pain, but may we submerge ourselves rather in your promises, in your goodness, in your faithfulness, and in your love. And we thank you that one day it will be done. There will be no more struggle and no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrows and no more losses and no more. And we look forward to that day, dear Lord. And we wait in patience. We thank you for calling us to the table. And as we come today, we come to celebrate what he did for us upon the cross and to celebrate his victory over death. And also, Lord, to remind ourselves of your calling to die that ultimately we might live. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.